Hello, and welcome back to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today we'll be talking to Farhan Hassan about astronomy. Farhan is a PhD student at New Mexico State University, where his research focuses on how galaxies form and evolve. We'll be talking about his research and its implications, and ask him why you'd call him if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now, welcome Farhan. So, Farhan, welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here. Wonderful. So let's start just kind of with a quick introduction. Who are you? So my name is Farhan Al-Hassan. I'm from Bangladesh originally. I've lived there all my life until high school, and then I moved here to the U.S. to do a bachelor's. I got a degree from Reed College in Oregon and now I'm doing a PhD in astronomy from New Mexico State. Wonderful. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. So can you give kind of like an explain like M5 of what is astronomy and why it's important? Yeah. So think about as far as what I do, think about a forest. You want to grow a forest. You have to plant a bunch of trees to grow the forest. The forest is like a galaxy. The trees are like stars. You can't make a galaxy without stars. It's like you can't make a forest without trees. And how do you grow those trees? You need nutrients from the soil. You need water. You need sunlight. Those things are basically the raw materials of the fuel for growing the trees and the forest, right? In much the same way, galaxies need fuel. They need cold gas to form stars, and they need a place to store away the waste material that forms because of forming stars. And so the fuel and the waste material and all the stuff that's coming into play as galaxies form is stored in this place outside of the galaxies that we call the circumgalactic medium. And so my research really focuses on studying this stuff, this really, really, really thin stuff that we can't really see very you know, galaxies and stars are shining brightly, but the circumgalactic medium or CGM doesn't shine by its own light. So to use indirect methods to study it, but that's basically what I look at. As for astronomy as a whole, it is everything that you can think of whenever you're looking up at the sky. Astronomy has everything sure. to do with planets, with our sun, with other stars like and unlike our sun. It has to do with galaxies, our own galaxy that you can see if, you, if you're in a dark enough location. It has to do with black holes. It has to do with uh, neutron stars and, and, and gravitational waves and all kinds of really interesting things, all kinds of really wacky things and many things that we don't understand. And that's why it's important to know because, you know, you look up in the sky and you realize that you're stuck to this rock right that's where we are yeah. we're, we're on this like big rock in outer space literally just floating around this kind of yellow looking star and you start to realize that you know you're it's just a small picture of the big puzzle there are so many yeah. billions of stars out there in our own galaxy so many that we can't even see because they're so faint and then outside of our galaxy, there are trillions of other galaxies. So there's, you know, a lot going yeah, on there. all interacting in ways that we just can't even process. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, interesting. So this stuff, what's it called again? That's outside? The circumgalactic medium. So the circumgalactic medium. <laughs> yeah. So okay. Every time I try, you know, typing that onto a word editor or something, it'll, you know, it'll show me a, a typo. <laughs> yeah, know, definitely. It's not a, it's not a usually used word. 
CGM. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what role does it play in the evolution and the birth, the death, everything of a galaxy? Yeah, so it plays a pretty critical role, actually. So like I said, galaxies are made of stars, and stars can't just form out of nowhere. They need some. They need cold gas, gas that is really cold, which needs to condense, which needs to, you know, coalesce, and it needs by cooling and by becoming more and more dense, it will at one point, you know, collapse to form stars. And so that cold gas comes from the CGM. So it contains the raw materials basically for fueling star formation, which in turn makes galaxies as we know them. And then after stars are formed, you know, supernovas, right? They will, a lot of stars explode. And so the stuff that's blown away by supernova is actually the place it ends up is the circumgalactic medium. So the CGM has a record of the stuff that makes galaxies and the stuff that galaxies spit out. And to make matters more complicated, some of the stuff that it spit out actually goes back into the galaxy and it's recycled and so you have yeah. a whole record of everything that's going on from birth to death of stars inside of the galaxy okay so in your forest analogy it's kind of like if a if a tree fell over and died then yeah. at some point that would be reabsorbed into the ecosystem to be used again for more trees absolutely absolutely and i'm so glad you used the word ecosystem i was gonna use it. <laughs> so you know just like ecosystems here on earth like forests and mountaintops and deserts you have ecosystems surrounding every galaxy or at least every massive galaxy that is the size of our own galaxy and these ecosystems are basically what we call the serpent black okay so can we just start like what are the components of that ecosystem you have the stars you have the i guess their solar systems this right. cgm what else Right. So the most obvious component is obviously the stars and the gas that glows um, around the stars in a galaxy. That's stuff we can observe, you know, with an average telescope. But then outside, the stuff that we can't really observe. And so keep in mind that galaxies, uh, that the stars inside of galaxies only make up about 5% of the entire size of the galaxy. The rest, the other 95% is the CGM. And the reason mm. we don't see that through our telescopes that it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have its own light to emit, you know, very easily. So we can't really observe that. And it's, it's most of the galaxy and it's just gas. That's what it is. That's why it's so thin. That's why it's so hard to observe because it's just gas and it extends to way beyond the extent of the galaxy. But in terms of what is out there, it's just gas. And in between this gas, there is this whole, like I said, this whole interplay of moving into the galaxy, moving out of the galaxy and stuff that's actually even accreting or assimilating from outside of the whole system, which we call the intergalactic medium. Okay. The IGM or intergalactic medium. Yeah, very interesting. So these things that you're trying to study, you, you mentioned that there's they don't give off their own light, and so they're really hard to it's hard to see what's going on because you have to use the light from the stars, and they're extremely massive and even more extremely far away. So how do we make any observations with any degree of accuracy? Okay, that's a great question, and to be honest, the most the best response I can give you is that we trust physics. <laughs> okay, so hmm. it. There's so we believe that there's no reason to to think that the physical laws that we observe here on Earth are any different than the physical laws many 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 millions of light years away in distant galaxies. Okay. okay, and so that's our basic assumption: is that things like gravity, things like general and special relativity, things like things like 
how the electromagnetic spectrum works, hydrodynamics, how gas cools and flows. There's no reason to expect that any of that is fundamentally different in other parts of the universe that we observe. And so we rely on basic physical principles. For example, what I do, spectroscopy is this technique of splitting light into its many different components by wavelength. So Hmm. you basically see the whole spectrum uh, play out. And the entire premise behind it is atomic physics. We know that atoms can absorb and emit light. And specific atoms will do that at specific wavelengths. And so when I'm looking out into a, to a spectrum of a very distant, very bright object, if I see something at a certain wavelength, I will know what caused that feature. I will know what happened there, what exactly caused that feature. Because of atomic physics, we know what is responsible for every feature in a spectrum, okay? So for example, if I observe a sort of dip in the spectrum at a certain wavelength, I can just look up a table of atoms, right? I can look up a table of atoms and it will tell me what atom is responsible for uh, what atom emits at that certain wavelength or what atom mm. absorbs at that certain wavelength. And so that those things are like clockwork. Those things are not going to change. Doesn't matter how many billions of light years away you are, as long as it's in the universe we observe, those things will remain the same. And so we, short answer to your question is we trust physics and well, yeah. we, trust, we trust that our detectors and all of our instruments are reasonably accurate that that at whatever that is, at that distance, right? That whatever yeah. information we get is not, you know, totally fudged. Hmm. Interesting. And how much has our understanding of the physics that go into some of this stuff changed in the past? I mean, up to fifty years, I guess, because it might be that something that we observe today, because of the way that we represent it in physics today, might be different than how it's eventually explored in a different area of physics that is something to do here on Earth that we're using to represent very, very far away. Right. How much does that change? To be honest, it's changed a lot. So physics has gone through a lot of changes throughout the last, you know, since Newton, basically, yeah, in the last hundreds of years. A lot, a lot of drastic, dramatic changes did occur in the last 50 or so years. For example, Mm -hmm. one big thing is our current model of cosmology, which explains why things are in the universe, like large structures, why galaxies form, and, you know, why we see them move and stuff like that. That model of cosmology you know, it's still not perfectly tuned. Yeah. But we do know of something called dark matter, which wasn't discovered until the 70s. And dark matter is this mysterious kind of, most likely this kind of particle that, you know, has mass for which it interacts gravitationally with things. And so that leaves a sort of signature on our observation. And we only discovered that in the 70s, right? And dark matter ever since then has been has been incorporated into our basic cosmological models so that we can explain the universe. But then to make things even harder is this thing called dark energy. So dark energy is like this mysterious vacuum force, right? And this force is responsible for accelerating the expansion of the universe. And by that, I mean... What? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Mind blown. There was a Big Bang which started everything. This, I think, is pretty common knowledge. Everyone has probably heard of the Big Bang. And so what happened in the Big Bang is that there is a lot of what we call momentum. It's, you know, if you're driving a truck, it's really massive. 
okay, it's very heavy, got a bunch of stuff, it's a truck, so it's big, and it's moving really fast, it's hard to stop the truck, right? Like you got to hit the brakes like pretty far in advance of where you want to stop. So in the same way, the Big Bang had a lot of energy associated with it. And so it had a lot of momentum. And so the universe expanded. Right after the Big Bang, the universe kept expanding, and it's never stopped expanding. But what we found out more recently is that this expansion has actually accelerated over hmm. the last you know, few billion years or so. And this is because of dark energy. It's actually making it so that everything is moving away from each other at a faster rate than they did in the past. So for example, the Andromeda galaxy or you know, any kind of nearby galaxy is moving away from us faster right now than they were, say, a million years ago. And the reason mm. for this is this mysterious dark energy. And we only recently figured out that it's actually like responsible for about 70% of the total budget of mass and energy in the universe. Right? 70% of everything is Jeez. caused by dark energy. And the explanation, the explanation for this is, or the reason that we need to say that it's there is because if, because everything's accelerating, there's energy being introduced into the system, right? Right. right. Is that, is right. that a good way to understand it? So it's like, it's breaking Newton's law otherwise, unless we right. have this dark energy. Right. You need dark energy to explain what you observe. Yeah, essentially. And to blow your mind a little more, <laughs> dark matter, which I mentioned is another component of this total you know, energy budget. Guess how much of the universe is dark matter? Uh, something less than 30, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great guess. It's around 20-25%. Okay, so you've got 70% from dark wow. energy, 25% from dark matter. And that leaves the rest of everything, which is stuff we observe, we call them baryons. That's about 5% of the universe. <laughs> wow. So yeah. you and I are like point zero 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 one somewhere, somewhere yes, less than that. Yep, yep. We're many decimal places. Insignificant. Yep, we're very, very insignificant in the in the, in the bigger picture of, of things. Right. So to get back to your main question, that is one of the big things that the last fifty or so years have produced this model of cosmology, which physicists use, which astronomers use, and then of course you have the whole thing about gravitational waves uh, and how that explains uh, Einstein's, uh, is explained by Einstein's theory of relativity. Then you have particle physics, which we need to, we need to know because particle physics is intricately tied to, to cosmology and to astronomy and to really understand our models better. We need to know what fundamentally nature is made out of. Yeah. So how, how much of this, I mean, it, it sounds like there's so much for us to go out and understand. And every time that we discover something new, there's something else that we need to kind of create something for. And you hear that in all different types of fields. But yeah. how much of this is like a representation that we've created in order to, to try and put some structure around what we see versus something that maybe we're just missing, like the very simple explanation behind all of this stuff? Okay, so that's a great question. You know, I saw a TED Talk one time by a scientist, a physicist, I think, who said something that like really struck me? That is, science is a belief mechanism. Okay, it's mm. it's it's like religion. It's like it's like spirituality in a lot of ways. You can tell the entire world that light bends due to general relativity, and you can yeah. do one experiment, and you know you can prove it by yourself. But then if I tell you, if I tell you that light is a spectrum, that it's made out of all these things. 
And you know that a bunch of scientists throughout the centuries have worked on this to prove this many, many times. Even then, you have to place your faith in me, right? You have to like say that, hey, a bunch of scientists and this one scientist friend of mine have told me this. They can't be wrong. They have all these really accurate yeah. techniques to prove it, right? So how could yeah. they be wrong? Regardless, it's a belief system. You're be- hmm. placing your faith in me. And so that's, I, this is, okay, this is not to discredit scientists or the, or the scientific method. Or your I, profession, yeah. Or my profession <laughs> or my advisor's <laughs> profession, you know. It, the scientific method built modern human society as we know it. All the technology mm-hmm. and all the knowledge we have right now is built on the pillars of science, but it's all kind of an approximation. You can't, what, yeah. we know speed of light to a certain certain degree, to a certain decimal place. Beyond that, we just, you know, we just, we hit a wall. We're just not, we can't be any more precise. None of our measurements are divine. A lot of physics textbooks will have like problems involving like, oh, if, if you were a demigod, you know, or if you were a deity you and you'd measure it to perfect precision and then you measured it as human, you know, what difference in precision would that make? So it's coming back to that idea that we're not perfect, but we can make as many measurements and refine our measurements as accurately as possible to come to the most likely answers, which is what yeah, science it's does. iterative. It's it's almost an optimization. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I hope we get blown out of the water by some of our beliefs sometime soon. But for <laughs> um, now, we'll, we'll keep your job. <laughs> <laughs> really cool. Really cool. So I'm interested too in, in some of the analytical techniques you're using. So mm-hmm. have things like machine learning or AI or some, some of these industry buzzwords, but things that can actually give you more analytical chops. Have you been using any of these or do you see that in your field often as, as increasing our ability to make some of these optimization, these processes, these assumptions? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. So what I do, is, like I said, is spectroscopy. So my main work right now involves looking at the spectra of quasars. Quasars are really, really bright objects that are actually caused by very, 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 very large black holes. And just to be clear, spectra spectra are like the different colors it emits? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you you can split light into its Mm -hmm. separate components. You know, you shine white light through a prism. And you'll see the famous, you know, the dark side of yeah. the moon, Pink Floyd album cover, that famous picture. So light splits into it. Well, a rainbow invisible light, but like literally every wavelength from like nanometer wavelengths to like meter wavelengths, right? Many, 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 many orders of magnitude there. Yeah. So we do the same thing. We split light into light from quasars into the entire wavelength that we uh, range that we observed. And so what we look for is remember the cgm as i mentioned earlier you can't observe it directly right so it doesn't emit its own light in in, in most cases so what we do is we look for places in the spectrum where we see sort of this dip in the absorption so you have a bunch of light and all of a sudden there's a lack of light the spectrum sort of dips at that point and that we associate with a certain element or a certain ion or certain chemical right and so we say, we assume that this is due to a, the CGM of a certain galaxy. The problem here is that you have to look at the spectrum the entire way through and you have to like mine it really carefully, often hmm. with manual techniques, which is what I did entire, the entire summer. I looked at the oh spectra gosh. of 
hundreds of quasars to find a certain metal ion, carbon-4, which is just three times charged carbon, which is really abundant in the CGM. And so we're looking for those. And then magnesium-2 mm. is another ion. We're looking for these ions. And so to do that, you have to look at do the spectrum. You have to scan the entire spectrum and find things that look similar. And from atomic physics, you figure out like you know how the structure, the profile of the, this dip should look like, and all sorts of really complicated things that you kind of have to do by eye. You can automate this process to some extent, but it really is very subjective when it comes down to it. Yeah. So machine learning carries immense prospects for this. Machine learning, we're actually thinking about how to implement it in our work because, mm. because think about it. You train a machine to identify all of these lines, all of these elements in these weird spectra, right? And yeah. it'll take it, you know, it'll learn it. You'll teach it, it will learn it. And then it won't take it very long to identify to just mine these hundreds or thousands of or however many spectra you throw the, uh, to the machine, it will learn these elements, it will know them. And so it will pick out these absorbers. And essentially, it'll complete my entire summer's work in, you know, <laughs> less, in less than days. So machine learning holds incredible potential to just like the basic aspects of my own work. And yeah. then this is not to mention simulations, which we use in mm -hmm. astronomy all the time, and improvements in resolution. Basically, you know, you can you can simulate how galaxies evolve on larger scales, like you know, millions of light years kind of scales. But what happens when it's like really really small scale? What happens at the maybe a solar system's level of physics? We really don't we don't yeah, know how, how we, fractals our knowledge. Right, right. So, so our resolutions haven't gone down to those to those levels, and 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 so we really need to look forward to these technologies, which will enable us to resolve the physics on that level, so that we can understand cool. things better than ever. Very interesting. Very cool. It seems like this is great to be able to understand and very kind of lofty ideas. But how is this information useful to us on Earth? Are there any analogies or outcomes that can be drawn that would impact our daily lives? That's a great question. So. You know, I've been asked by my dad when I started <laughs> out in graduate school in astronomy. He, there's not, there was nothing like that in our family, right? He, and so he very understandably asked me what the point of the whole thing is. And what I told him is, this is a matter of perspective to me and to a lot of people I know. See, we're here on a planet that is warming up, that is facing challenges like or at least a human species that's facing challenges that it's never faced before the extent of which is unprecedented and is if i may say so probably the most the biggest existential threat to our lifetimes is climate change mm -hmm. you have the threat of asteroids possibly colliding with us you have the problem of really energetic solar flares from the sun that could harm all satellite and communication systems on Earth. You have a whole bunch of things for which astronomy is directly applicable, or the study of astronomical sources is directly applicable to like solving problems on Earth, including, like I said, climate change, solar flares, etc. But then you have this bigger issue, in my opinion, that we're here on this, we're stuck on this planet facing climate change and all these really existential things that our entire species has to combat together, right? And here we are 
fighting our wars, fighting over our greed, you know, oppressing each other because of the color of our skin, because of our nationality, because of who we love, etc. And it's kind of ridiculous to think about it like that when you know that there is so much out there, that there is that we are a lonely rock yeah. in a lonely solar system, right, which is in a certain like an in, seemingly insignificant part of a galaxy that's just like one galaxy among what we know to be trillions of other galaxies out there. And here we are bickering amongst ourselves yeah. with, with these like really things that basically are very, very petty. And in many ways, I would say insignificant, like our own capitalist greed should not get in the way of us protecting our species and working together to try to understand our place in this very, you know, unique universe that we find ourselves in, understand nature, understand this gift that we've been given that we call life, right? Nowhere else in the universe do we know of that has life. And so there are all these bigger things that we could be focusing on, including what I do uh, is how galaxies evolve. Absolutely. Instead of fighting amongst ourselves, instead of pressing each other and othering each other, I think instead of doing all those things, we should really focus our efforts into understanding the world in which we live and understanding our place in it. Yeah. And that can help us with the problems that we're experiencing today. Absolutely. 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 Those are some more realistic things, things like influencing climate change and trying to help us understand how we might combat solar flares in the future, even the survival of our immediate species. What about some other sci-fi level applications? How can this help us get to Star Trek? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. So <laughs> understanding galaxies requires understanding more than just phenomenology. So you need to know not just how stars form, right? You need to, or how we can detect how stars form. You also need to know what the physics behind it is. And to be honest with you, we don't under understand the physics on many levels. We don't understand, we, hell, we don't even know how, forget stars, we don't even know if Jupiter really has a core or not. And Jupiter's hmm. basically in our backyard, right? Compared to these galaxies that are so far away, Jupiter's yeah. right there and we don't even know. And we've sent space probes there and, <laughs> and we still don't know the answer to that question. We don't know our own sun. Yeah. Very well, especially the fact that uh, the corona of the sun is so much hotter than the uh, core that we don't know why that is. So there are yeah, all we, these. We questions. see it every day. We should, we should know a absolutely. lot more. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So there are all these questions, questions which are fundamental, which we don't know the answers to. And once we do, I believe, I believe, when we understand the physics of how galaxies evolve, we will understand. It will be a revolution like the industrial revolution times. I would say maybe a million hmm. because imagine understanding space and time on such a profound and powerful level that you understand how to warp space time to your advantage, right? Have you heard of the Alcubierre warp drive? <laughs> the Cubier warp? No, not specifically. <laughs> so it's named after this scientist named Alcubierre. But anyway, he proposed that we could travel faster than light. And this is actually something that they are funding research for right now, believe it or not. So the idea behind the warp drive is that we could travel faster than light, which is impossible according to special relativity. But the idea is that we could travel faster than light if we could bend the space-time, or if we could manipulate the space-time inside of which our spaceship stands. 
in order to do something like that, we need to understand the physics of space-time itself. So really mm. what my research and what the research of many in my field and those studying galaxies and cosmology, really where it's heading towards is understanding physics at this very, very fundamental level. And this doesn't just have to be space-time. It has to do with particles. It has to do with fluid mechanics on a very intricate level. You understand that. You understand how to manipulate space and time and all sorts of things that you know, would seem like fiction right now. But yeah. remember that like a man on the moon was basically fiction at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we did it. So, you know, I'm not saying my research necessarily has direct sci-fi applications, but the broader picture and cracking that bigger puzzle definitely does. Potentially. Yeah. So the goals are just discredit Einstein is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Look, Einstein is like <laughs> is Beyonce. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like Beyonce. Yes, Einstein is the Beyonce of our field. So, no, I would not discredit Einstein <laughs> unless evidence popped up that I just could not ignore. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Great. So, I think we've talked a lot about your field and and everything else going on around it. Is there any other exciting research that you know of in your field right now that you're is kind of cutting edge or that you're very excited about seeing the results of? So, right now we're experiencing sort of crisis in cosmology, as they're calling it. And this is due to, remember, dark energy that I mentioned earlier? Yeah. And remember how I said it's about 70% of the energy of the universe? Mm -hmm. Turns out that number is really not fixed. And even with our most accurate measurements, we can measure the extent of this dark energy. And turns out, using two different methods, we're getting two different values that are about 5 to 10% apart mm. from each other. And this is considering the error bars or the uncertainties we have associated with those measurements. So this has led many astronomers to believe that there is something fundamentally different about our cosmological models, perhaps, that we're not understanding, or, the, or that there's something against measurement that we're exactly, exactly, that we're just not getting. And so to really crack that mystery will be very cool. And this is something that's just popped up in this decade, oh, wow. actually, as, as, as a big crisis. So it'll be very interesting to see how that works out. And then you have, of course, all these missions to solar system planets that are being planned. Europa Clipper is something I'm really looking forward to. Europa Clipper is going to send a probe basically to Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter. Hmm. And the reason we want to send it there is that we have enough evidence to believe that there is a whole ocean of liquid water underneath the icy surface of Europa. And we mm. want to send it there to, uh, to study the ice structure and to potentially study habitability uh, wow. you know, if life could exist or has existed on that planet. To do that, we need to send that spacecraft there. And that's something I'm looking forward to. And of course, you have a Parker Solar Probe that's coming up, which will fly very close to the sun to study the sun that's never been done before at that level. And then the biggest one of them all that I've, looked, I've been looking forward to forever is the James Webb Space Telescope which will launch a space telescope. It will be a six-meter telescope, and it will deploy in a point in space that is twice as far from us as the moon is. Wow. And so basically, you can't really do maintenance on it once it's there. Yeah, and at least for now, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But you know, it's worth it because it's so much bigger than any other space telescope we have right now. And being wow, out interesting. in outer space, yeah, you can look further out than anything than basically we've ever looked before. Wow. Very cool. Well, lots to learn here. So 
people who are listening to this and getting as excited about it as I am, how do they support your mission and research in their everyday lives if they're not astronomy PhD students? How do they get more involved? So that's a great question. At New Mexico State, we do a lot of outreach. So we have STEM nights and space nights and, you know, star stargazing nights that which uh, grad students and other other members of the department often volunteer for mm-hmm. people can always we always encourage participation in these events and the local community at least in las cruces seems very excited about these prospects and i'm very appreciative of that mm-hmm. on, a, on a larger scale i would say lobbying <laughs> yeah to Congress and to like state level and local politicians for perhaps increasing funding in the sciences because that has kind of stalled in recent years. You know, yeah. the shuttle era ended at the beginning of this towards the beginning of this decade. And as as someone who is, you know, who whose life right now is devoted towards space understanding space, it would be great to have this program back where we, you know, s- send out shuttles and people into space so that we explore more so that people can land on on mars and we don't have to rely on private entrepreneurship to accomplish those goals which is not to say that i that i'm against you know the works the work done by elon musk and bezos and all those people but we i really wish that we had that sort of support financially and otherwise on the federal level and the local level and so one and so this is what everyone can do is 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 ask their politicians to pay more attention to these issues of science and space and exploration and of course the most important thing that I do want to mention that I think everyone should get involved in is, is recognizing climate change as a global threat yep. and to and to take steps to preventing it, and especially by influencing policymakers so that reasonable reasonable policies are put into place so that we can tackle this this threat. Fantastic. So we're down to the last question here. Farhan, so you are going to be a doctor at some point here. In what <laughs> in what sort of emergency should somebody call you? <laughs> so if there is an eclipse, <laughs> solar eclipse, lunar eclipse happening nearby that people are aware of, they want to know how to observe it. I'm not, by the way, I'm not an eclipse expert. I study galaxies which are as far from nearby things as you can imagine. Yeah. But if you, <laughs> if they would like to know how to observe the eclipse, I'm sure I could help them out with something like that eclipse or a transit or something that, you know, you can just, you can just see from your backyard or with a small telescope or whatever. That's definitely the kind of stuff that I could help people out with. Uh, or, you know, you, you see a picture of a, of a black hole surface on the internet and everyone's losing their minds over it on Twitter or Reddit or whatever. You can probably ask me because I do happen to know a bit about black holes. You can ask me, you know, what the significance of that is or why we care about that, things like that. Uh, not just black holes, things like gravitational waves or any other big developments in astronomy that everyone's talking about. You you don't really understand what's going on or why it's important. Please do reach out. <laughs> right. Wonderful. Well, for somebody in the astronomy field, you definitely seem very down to earth. So thanks for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time, Farhan. I'm very excited to see what you do with with the rest of your research. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today, we've been talking with Farhan Hassan about his research on galaxies, how they form, and what that means for us here on Earth. For more information on Farhan, check out our website, somebodycallaphd.com. 
If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who is doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycalledphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.